Welcome to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to the Female Insight Zone. This is Mary Beth Kuzmeski. Today I'm talking to Kathy O'Dowd. She is a South African mountaineer. She is the first woman in the world to climb Everest from both sides. For over 20 years, she's worked as an internationally acclaimed motivational speaker, drawing on her Himalayan experiences to illustrate themes around leadership, team dynamic, project management, and motivation. I could not be more excited to talk with someone who has climbed both sides of Mount Everest. Kathy O'Dowd, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be with you. So tell me how you got started. So I know that, you know, you're speaking and you're doing these things, but how did you get started climbing? How did you get started as a mountaineer? What led you to this? Well, it was a slow, gradual journey. So I hated sport at school. I was at an all-girls school and we played the sort of appropriate team sports that young ladies were supposed to play, you know, tennis and netball and field hockey and things. I hated all of it. Partly because I don't like losing. I don't like competitive sports. And partly because I don't connect with balls very well. I don't think I'm actually terribly well coordinated. So I pigeonholed myself at school as this little academic nerd. And then I got sent on some of these summer adventure camps as a young teenager and found the big mountains and hiking and camping. And I thought, oh, this is great. And got to try rock climbing just once and loved that. And when I got to university, there was a rock climbing club. And I thought, yes, now this, this sounds like a fun way to spend my weekends, get out of the city and try this physical thing that it looks like I might actually be reasonably good at. And I was. It was a revelation to actually be good at a physical sport, but also to find something that wasn't directly competitive, a deeply personal challenge. And that was the beginning of a, a lifelong journey in climbing. Well, that is absolutely amazing. And I have to think, you said, well, you didn't think you're particularly coordinated. You must be very coordinated, but just maybe in a different way than is required for field hockey or something like that. But I just think it's absolutely amazing. So when you started climbing, were you climbing with other women? Were you climbing with men? Talk about you know, how you kind of developed your climbing partners. Oh, I was climbing with men. There was no choice. So I think in my sort of group in the university club, there was one other woman. And she and I are still friends all these years later, although she doesn't climb much anymore. But I hung out with a really nice group of men. And in some ways, I look back at that experience and think I gained a lot from it because men are pushy and confident and ambitious. And if they don't sort of steamroll you, that's really quite an inspiring environment. On the other hand, as I look at sort of how many more women are in the space now, 30 years later, I am aware that myself and my friend Linda, we were doing the cool girl thing. Well, you're the one girl who's been allowed into the boys club because you're cool enough. <laughs> and at the time, it actually, it was fun being that one girl. It was exciting. In retrospect, I do realize it's really profoundly sexist because we were having to play into a certain kind of woman who was good enough to hang with the men. And I'm glad to see that younger women have a much wider range of partners that they can climb with and are much more supportive of each other, have much more opportunity to climb with other women. 
Although I sometimes think that some of the woman-only climbing groups, they miss a little bit of just that push and ambition and challenge that men have so apparently effortlessly. I really like mixed groups in the end. I think they're the best. Hmm. So when you first climbed Everest, what was the most difficult thing that you didn't think about? I mean, was there something that was really difficult or a huge challenge that you hadn't considered? Oh, the team dynamic, completely. The mountain itself, I mean, wasn't easy, but yeah, clearly I could do it because I did eventually get to the top. And it wasn't technically more difficult than things I'd already climbed in the Andes. The team dynamic was dreadful. And before, I'd done things for, you know, two weeks, three weeks with a group of people who were roughly friends or colleagues. And you can put up with most people for a week or three. But Everest, suddenly, instead of just being a handful of friends who paid their own way, we're on this business project with this, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollar budget and legal responsibilities to all these sponsors and the media right across the country following us as if we were a national team, except we don't have a you know, PR training or a publicity team or anybody to help us. And in the middle of this, we don't even like each other. And then I've been parachuted in as the token woman who got added at the last minute by the newspaper sponsor to kind of sex up the coverage. So I'm in a desperately awkward position trying to prove that I'm good enough to be on this mountain. And I was. But, you know, I hadn't come on the team in a way that made that at all clear. So, yeah, a failing team dynamic. I think that's the first time I'd really encountered it. And it was a hell of a shock how badly adult professional people who supposedly share a passion for the project, how badly they can behave and how they can sabotage the project and sabotage themselves as they basically gameplay and, and power play. So what did you learn from that? And, and is that something that you share with audiences when you speak? Absolutely. <laughs> In a sense, it was this terribly traumatic experience at the time, but invaluable. Invaluable for my personal learning curve and, frankly, invaluable for my subsequent speaking career. So on a personal level, what was actually so valuable about it was that in many ways, it was this epic failure. So yes, I got to the top of Everest, and that was an important success. But the team itself was this terrible failure in terms of decent team dynamic. And then we got caught up in this big storm, which made the whole season on Everest just go, you know, what splashed across the media worldwide. And then in terms of our team, we had a member of our team killed on the descent. So even our final success turned into tragedy almost immediately, which meant that we got another massive wave of negative publicity back in South Africa. Everybody had an opinion, and most of them thought we were selfish and suicidal and crazy. And yeah, it was a terribly traumatic experience, but it was so good for me. And the reason I say this, and I think this is important for women, I was very middle class. I was academically successful. I liked pleasing my parents. I liked having my teachers be proud of me. I did not like failing at anything. And I very quickly gave up on anything that looked like I might possibly fail. I liked doing well at things. 
<laughs> and of course, what that made was I was too careful and I was dogged a little bit by perfectionism. It had to be the best it could possibly be before I could commit to doing it or put my name to it. And you, you cannot go through life like that. It's desperately limiting to always have to succeed and to always have to be perfect. And Everest just thrust me into the media in something that was so far from perfect. And even my little success as the first South African, because I was the first to reach the top of the South Africans. Now, so not just the first South African woman to climb Everest, the first South African. And of course, it's only women who have to say the first South African. Men don't have to say that. <laughs> and we just assume a man has always done it first and a woman is claiming a female first. So I have this kind of important success and it's overshadowed by this massive public failure. And it was horrible. And it was really important to my development because I slogged my way through that failure and still did the speeches and still wrote a book and still survived all the horrible negative media interviews and all the strangers who had opinions. And came out the other side and thought, this has opened my life up in ways that are extraordinary and important and that really matter to me. And I only got that by slogging through the valley of failure. I just waded into this media firestorm. And it was a firestorm that had a, a fair dose of sexism in it. I came back, for example, my boyfriend knew I wasn't going to marry him. He'd asked. I'd said no already. And the media somehow, he never quite explained how, cornered him into asking again publicly via a newspaper. It was a terrible idea, which forced me to have to say no publicly which then allowed the media to talk about ice queen picks fame over love. You know, they, oh, isn't she a bitch? Because she's decided she'd rather go and climb mountains than be, you know, settle down with a poor loving man she left behind. Yeah. So, oh yeah, yeah, actually looking back, there was some nasty sexism fed through the negative publicity that I came back to. But... Slogging my way through it all with all the hurt and sitting at home crying and crying to my mother about how it wasn't fair and it didn't matter what I say, they, they didn't believe me. And all of that was really useful. What I learned about the fact that I can't control the entire narrative and that's okay. All I can do is try and do the right thing by my own standards and trust that the people who know me will believe me and keep on trucking very useful life lessons that have made me a lot more prepared to try things and fail at things and not take it too personally, learn what I can and keep on moving. So in retrospect, I'm very grateful for all I learned from that experience. Well, one of the things that you talk about is in your presentations is about leadership. What was something that you really pulled away from that experience and then subsequent experiences that really taught you something about leadership? I think Okay, two key thoughts, perhaps. One is the importance of personal leadership. So that although we're often in situations where there is a hierarchy, and it may be fair enough to stand around and go like, the leadership is dreadful, and they ought to recognize that things are going wrong. That's not necessarily you know, going to change anything. In a lot of situations, what we need to do is step up into the vacuum as best as we can. And whether that's taking personal leadership of our own career or our own participation in the particular project, or whether we're stepping up as a sort of temporary leader to try and shepherd a difficult situation forward in ways that might be more successful, every single person carries a responsibility 
to the team, to the project, to the group, and to yourself, your own life path, to step up, not just to you know, identify other people's failure of leadership. Hmm. I think the other thing that I felt was important, first of all, in my experience of that team as a team member, with difficult team members and difficult leader, and then my own experience with expedition leadership later on, is the need for leaders to be flexible. So you kind of bring your own style to the project, which may be more consensus-driven, it may be more authoritarian, you know, it depends on your background and your personality. But you do need to broaden your style because one style of leadership may not be appropriate. On a mountain, for example, in a storm, in a crisis, absolutely stand up with authoritarian, rapid leadership. This is the decision. This is what needs to happen next. The thing is, mountain climbers, it's not a hierarchy. You can't fire them. They just look at you and go like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> I don't care if you're the leader. It makes no difference. And it happens. Team members just look at the leader and go like, yeah, no, that's not happening. <laughs> so for them to follow instructions in times of stress and crisis, you have to have built up trust and credibility from the rest of the time, which means in the rest of the time, you probably need to be a lot more consensus driven. You need to allow space for people to speak out. You need to take time to hear opposing points of view. You need to put the effort in to try and herd people towards the consensus you're looking for. And if they will not be herded, you need to think about why nobody on your team appears to think that your point of view is the correct one. And it's putting that time in, banking that trust that hopefully let your team simply follow you quickly without arguing when you're in a crisis. Yeah, a lot to learn from the things that you've gone through for sure. I know that you've got something called the business of adventure. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that project that you're working on? Well, that's kind of a fun side project that I started up recently, partly because I wanted to stay in touch with a younger generation of adventurers partly because I'm aware that the space is changing and I need to be on top of that as much as anybody. So I get younger people coming to me saying, yes, but expeditions, adventures, how do I pay for it? And increasingly, young people who think of professional adventurer as a job category in a way that it didn't really exist 30 years ago. And it is kind of a job category, but it's one that comes with, you know, no guidance. It's not as if there's a career path here or mentors or a lot of information about how to do it on the internet. They're just a couple of inspirational people who appear to be doing it almost effortlessly. And then very little guidance on how many people try it, fail, give up, and quietly go back to having normal jobs. So I thought I'd put together a website and a community and an email newsletter around finding funding for adventure and running a career as a so-called professional adventurers. And of course, most of us are actually finding our money from speaking or writing books or making movies. So we don't call ourselves professional adventurers, even though at its heart, we're making money off adventures that we have done or are still doing. And I think it's a very interesting space and one in which there's desperate need for some level-headed guidance. There's a lot of inspirational stuff particularly now with the rise of Instagram and, you know, the quick quote on social media, lots of 
throw your fears to the wind, you know, $25 in your back pocket and courage and you too can do it. It's like, oh, please, you know. <laughs> right. Most of us need a little more than $25 and a bit more planning. And honestly, a lot of people who are doing the $25 thing, they come to it with a kind of privilege they don't acknowledge, as in they've got middle-class parents who will just sigh and pull out their credit card and bail them out of trouble if it all goes wrong. Or they don't have student loans that they're having to worry about. Or, you know, whatever it is, they have first world passports and white skin and often they're men and they just travel through the world a little more easily than a lot of other people. And I think it's important to acknowledge that it requires work and planning and it requires financial backup and we need to think through those things. You aren't failing by saying, I need money and insurance and backup before I take on these big adventures. I wanted to do something that was really pragmatic about what it actually takes to do this safely and successfully. I think that's wonderful. So where is your next big adventure? Well, the trouble with that is I, I always feel that I'm letting people down if I don't have something that is going to strike them as significant. And the answer is, right now, I don't have one because partly because I want to spend the next year supporting and building the business of adventure. And that does mean easy access to the internet and my laptop and hours of work, you know, on a computer, not out in the mountains. Right. Partly because I live in the Pyrenees Mountains and I looked around recently and I thought, you know, there's so much I haven't done close to home. I've done the stuff in my backyard and I've done the stuff on the other side of the world in the Himalaya. But there's so much in the Pyrenees and Spain and France and Western Europe that I haven't done because it's not significant for the capital S. And that's a shame because it's fun and interesting and adventurous and challenging. You know, there's some world-class rock climbing just over the border in Spain. There's some brilliant alpine climbing just down the way in the central Pyrenees. I wanted to spend a year close to home exploring my local adventure, my own backyard. And then maybe after that, I'll go off and do another big, you know, <laughs> expedition that will make strangers excited. Well, it all sounds like a big adventure to me. So I think that even staying close to home and doing all the things that you're planning on doing is pretty amazing. So how can people reach you? Your website, on social media? Oh, yes, I'm on all of it because I like taking photographs and I like sharing the stories. So my website is kathyodowd.com. The adventure funding website is thebusinessofadventure.com. And then I'm on social media. I'm active on Twitter and Instagram at Kathy O'Dowd, lots of nice photos. And then you can find me on Facebook. Just look for Kathy O'Dowd Everest and you'll find me. I run an open Facebook well, that is absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your time, your insights, your stories, and your lessons really with us today on the Female Inside Zone. It's a pleasure. I'm always so excited about women getting together to support women to get things done. We are so good at this stuff, whether it's climbing mountains or running businesses, and we need to step up into that space and own that ability. I totally agree. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Female Insight Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.